0: I think that everyone's pretty much in agreement that the one thing that's absolutely imperative above everything is tenacity. If you've got a wall in front of you, can you get over it? Can you get around it? Can you get underneath it? And if the answer to all of that's no, a lot of people will go, well, I can't get through that wall. But the entrepreneur will say, so, I'm going to blow it up.
1: I'm Guy Gillen, one of the co-founders and managing partners at Tenzing. We're a private equity firm and we're passionate about the human stories in business. In this series, I'm getting under the skin of some of the UK's and the tech world's most interesting founders, entrepreneurs and CEOs. Today, I'm talking to Keith Abel. Keith is someone I love spending time with. He's infectious and an inspiration to me. He showed me it was perfectly normal to say sod it to a professional career and take a giant leap into the unknown. He's a failed barrister and a wonderful orator, and, of course, was the founder of the super successful, ahead of its time, fruit and veg box delivery firm, Able & Coal. He sold the business finally in 2012, and is now the major investor and chairman of the wonderfully successful Freddy's Flowers, which has seen customer numbers double in the last 12 months. Over the course of his career, Keith risked it all and had the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. And I'm super excited to share his story and words of wisdom with you. Enjoy. OK, so I'll get to start back in the early days. So can you remember your first entrepreneurial experience? Mm, uh, well, I'm trying to remember if there's anything before
0: that, but I remember when I was about 16 my mum was working as a nurse on the film set at Shepperton Studios and me and a mate went down there and uh, they were all parking in a field and we went and cleaned everyone's cars. I think it was a fiver for the outside and 10 quid for the inside and the out. And they were all absolutely delighted by it, except one American producer who thought I'd done a crap job. i never forget. <laughs> you haven't cleaned my goddamn car. <laughs> Well, of course, you know, there was the famous fire extinguisher story, which is how my career began. You must have heard this guy. Yeah. So my sister was 18 and she got a job selling fire extinguishers door to door. And I couldn't believe how much money she was earning. So I picked up these fire extinguishers and uh, I went and knocked on every single door in Little Chalfont and Chalfont St Peter in Buckinghamshire and said, do you want to buy a fire extinguisher? And quite remarkably, every single person that opened their door said no. (laughs) So I said to my sister, it was a crap job. She said, no, 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 you need to go and get some training. So I went up to London to get some training just around the corner from Bond Street. And then age 16, I walked into a shoe shop in Bond Street. And let me tell you, it was quite a smart one where my training had shown me to lay down a Financial Times newspaper, spray it with lighter fluid, drop a Swan Vestas match on it. And say, this could happen in your shop at any time and you'll need one of these. And you pick up your dry powder fire extinguisher, give it a squirt, put out the petrol before it lights the newspaper. Everyone's so amazed and in such shock that they say, oh, I'll buy one for my house and my kitchen and my garden. But (laughs) I hadn't pulled the safety catch. (laughs) So the newspaper went up on fire and the manager of the shop had to open up her water fire extinguisher. (laughs) And uh, I was 16 and I went the colour of those Le Bouton shoes. But it was very sweet because there were some people in there who clearly had children at the same age who felt desperately sorry for me. And I sold three fire extinguishers and I made 100 quid, which, let me tell you, in 1978 was big money. Yeah, it was a lot of money. So, uh,
1: yeah, that was my early entrepreneurship. So you did a kind of standard, reasonably standard school, but I know you qualified as a barrister, didn't you? Well, that's not technically true.
0: I certainly left school and went to university, where you had government grants in those days. So it was just a fantastic way not to do a lot. <laughs> and I did a history and economics degree, where I got a two two. And then I somehow found myself at City University School of Law, where I did a conversion course, which I did pass. Faithfully, on the day that I passed that exam, the tutor said, no one has ever gone on from here to fail the bar exam, having passed this exam first time. So that was my only academic first. I then did go and fail my bar exams. <laughs> and I resat them about five years later, and I did qualify. Yeah. So w- w- why did you want to be a barrister? Because a mate of mine was doing it. I mean, really, it was just, you know, careers advice in those days just didn't exist. My father turned up to my careers day. He was a surgeon and said, can he do medicine? And I was reading history and economics at the time. And they said, no, you can't. So he just wasn't interested beyond that. And I had a mate who was doing it. It
1: seemed like you could make a living doing it. I mean, thank God I didn't. Yeah. And so how did you get from being a failed barrister to -to door-to-door selling fruit and veg? So
0: uh, I found out that I'd failed my bar exams on a beach in Tarifa in southern Spain where I was perfecting my carve jibe and uh, with with a new girlfriend. And I had a choice of either driving straight back to London and resitting the exams or waiting a year. And remarkably, I chose to wait a year. And so I needed something to do for that year. And when I was at Leeds University, I'd taken my enormous skills that I learnt flogging fire extinguishers door to door and transported them into working for a guy who was selling potatoes. And he was quite a crafty old bugger. What he was doing is he was building up potato rounds, like milk rounds, and then selling them as a franchise to miners who were taking scab money from Margaret Thatcher. Do you remember they got bribed four grand to give up their jobs? Mining career, yeah. Yeah, and he was selling these rounds for 3,000 quid. And the problem was that the rounds were then rapidly collapsing and it was my job to build them back up again. So I was going around these housing estates in Wakefield, you know. What's some posh twat like you doing wandering around here selling me taties? Why should I buy them off you, you posh git? So I just decided to replicate that and I literally... It was very straightforward. I started the business, I stole £2,000 of traveller's cheques off my eldest brother, yeah. and I bought a ton of potatoes and a van that cost me 300 quid and a set of scales and some plastic bags, and I split the ton of potatoes into £10 bags, and I went and flogged them in Catford, on the door... And the only clever thing I did was I said, I'll be back next week if you don't want any, leave a note out. And so if they didn't leave a note, you dropped a bag. Yeah, and you next see them when they had ten bags of potatoes in their kitchen. <laughs> you
1: know. And they'd always pay you for them. Well, And it all really went from there. So what was the Paul link? How did that evolve to become Abel
0: and Cole? Well, Paul was at the intellectual mecca of the North with me, Leeds University where he proudly got a third in music and Italian (laughs) and couldn't get a job and sort of said he'd help me out. And that's really how we started. So by Christmas, we had lorries turning up to our little shed. We were unloading three or four tonnes a day on our shoulders. And then someone approached us, and he was a guy called Bernard. He was an organic farmer from Dorset. And he said, have you ever thought about selling organic potatoes?
1: Oh, right. So they weren't organic. They were just chip potatoes. Oh, ordinary. No, they were just chip potatoes.
0: So he said, do you want to sell some organic potatoes? Well, this was 1989. And, you know, the only answer to that was, well, of course they're bloody organic. They're grown out of the ground. <laughs> yeah. And he said, no, they're not. You know, ask the guy how many chemicals he puts on them. So I did actually go down and visit the farm and said, so what chemicals do you put on here? And he proudly opened up a shed that looked more like a, you know, viral testing unit... And uh, the next day, we went around selling to customers, you know, do you want them with chemicals or without? Right, Okay. And explaining on the doorstep what organic was. No one had heard of it. No one had heard of it. You know, Waitrose didn't sell any organic vegetables in 1989. So we were explaining what organic farming was. And the great thing is people would go, yeah, great, I'll try them. But what we noticed at the end of our first day selling was that no one asked us what the price was. Right, OK. Now, when we were in Ordinary Settling Potatoes, the first question you get is, how much are they? But yeah. No one was interested in the price. They, they liked the idea of it. So we were able to make a slightly better margin on the organic potatoes. And we did that for a few months. And then, um, you know, the customers would say, God, these are really good. You know, have you got any other organic vegetables? So, you know, we phoned up Bernard and we said, Bernard, could you do some other vegetables and he said, yeah, I'll throw them all in a box. I mean, there was no great... I'm um, no Steve Jobs, I can tell you. <laughs> this was nothing particularly... You know, and then Bernard would stick things in his box. And we'd phone him up and we go, Bernard, what's that thing that looks like a brain? And he go, oh, that's celeriac, that is. And i go, what do you do with celeriac? And he go, oh, you want to speak to my missus? And then she'd tell you how to make celeriac soup and we'd scribble it down and put it on a photocopier and stick it in the box. Wow. And we were really introducing unusual vegetables because first of all Bernard was a bit eccentric and grew lots of different stuff and secondly the diet was very different in those days so I like to think we were one of the first people to sell purple sprouting broccoli in Britain I remember we delivered kale and an American customer screamed at me and said why are you delivering me cow food (laughs) you know it was great fun introducing lots of things and then it just took off from there.
1: It started off as a year to fill, yeah, and then you got to the end of that year, and then what happened? Yeah, it wasn't quite as straightforward
0: as that. I mean, basically, after four years, it was pretty exhausting. To give you an idea, Guy, and for younger people listening, I'm going to sound like a 100. But we didn't have computers. Bill Gates hadn't got out of nappies. Mm. At one point, we had 5,000 customers uh, in delivery books, with each customer being represented by a piece of paper And that piece of paper would last three months. And at the end of three months, every single customer had to be written up on a new piece of paper with the amount outstanding. And if a customer phoned up to say they were going on holiday, we had to get their address and postcode, look it up in the back of an A to Z, get a grid reference, go to a giant map on the wall, find out which circle their address fell within. Yeah. And that might say, Tuesday, round seven. We pull round seven Tuesday off the shelf, flick through the 100 customers in that book, find 11 Smith Street and put a line through saying they didn't want any next week.
1: (laughs) Yeah, this is like a 25-minute exercise. It
0: was just, I mean, it was mind-blowingly complicated before computers. You know, when things started getting computerised, my brother gave me one of the first Microsoft PCs, which had 40 megabytes of memory in it. That was it. but it had a version of Excel, so you could add things up. But when we started putting our customers onto a database, we'd realized that collecting cash off people was really impossible because they often weren't at home. You had to go around in the evenings. And so we'd started encouraging people to give us their credit card details. And by the time we got onto a database in 1999, we were transmitting 3,000 credit card details by hand onto a mail order transaction machine, like the thing you touch in a in a service station, we were having to put in the entire long number of the credit card and the expiry date and the amount owed 3,000
1: times in a week. So, so, you mentioned this sort of what was essentially a hustle at start. And then when you and Paul went, okay, actually, you know, this is what we're doing, what was the thinking behind that? And then when did you actually first ever write down anything? Like in a goal.
0: I think there's a sort of the idealism of hindsight. You know, you might sort of look back and honestly, it was far more casual than that. You know, we were just young guys in our mid 20s driving around in pickup trucks, collecting lots of cash, having a bit of a laugh. Our friends were going into the city and working at PwC and doing serious jobs. And we were having a giggle, you know, one customer could never pay us in cash, he'd pay us in pot. <laughs> On Friday night, we'd get all the beers in. You know, we had loads of people around for supper and we'd eat egg and chips, because it was all we had. I think the only time it started being serious was when we discovered that we were losing serious amounts of money. And that was the point where we just had to take a massive grat pill very quickly. Yeah. So what, why were you losing money? Ah, well, you see, I now know with hindsight, we had very significant amounts of shrinkage. In other words, if you run a cash business and 10% of your customers, you don't get around to getting them to pay you because you can't find them when they're at home or they don't answer the door and your drivers are kind of getting home in the evening and they know that it's almost impossible for you to check how much they should have collected. So skim a bit. Just a tiny bit, the odd beer here and there and you don't have accounting systems in place we had a bookkeeper that would process invoices to prior months having closed off the month but not closed off the month because he knew we got upset if we made a loss so he just showed us a profit every month and put the invoices into that month a bit later (laughs) you add all of those things up over time in a business that's cash generative customers paying you straight away you're paying your suppliers one month two months three months at one point, I owed the Inland Revenue five months employee tax. I mean, you can't get away with two weeks these days. We owed the VAT man six months VAT. I mean, it was, you know, we were in, we were getting into serious trouble. Didn't your um, father-in-law take you aside? Well, it was really the Inland Revenue that took me to one side. <laughs> and they did it in a kind of bureaucratic way by putting a for sale sign outside of my house. Oh, right. Okay. Because yeah. we were a partnership at the time. And so we were personally liable... And I bought a house in Ballam when houses in Ballam were cheap with a big mortgage, but it still had asset in it. And so they put it up for sale. And I think that was the point at which my father-in-law, who was an accountant, helped me with my ex-wife to trawl through the books and establish just how deep the hole was. And we discovered that the hole was half a million deep, which is (laughs) quite a lot when you're sort of 30. I I thought it was 60 or 70. Yeah, so we were in all sorts of trouble and with an enormous amount of help from them, we started balancing our books. We removed the shrinkage completely. We trimmed back the business to only deliver to our most profitable areas. And we basically went from losing £4,000 a month to making £4,000 a month inside of four weeks. Wow, super quick. We put our prices up by 10%. Customers didn't mind. And then what happened was my father-in-law came up with a clever idea. He loaned me money to pay off the inland revenue but put a charge on my property so that they couldn't ever come after it again he'd have to get paid back first oh, that's good yeah. and he charged me interest that was more than he was earning on that money so it was a commercial loan and I paid every cent back and so you're a
1: partnership so you incorporated to- we
0: incorporated after we discovered how deep the debt was and effectively we left the losses in the partnership And we had a little egg wholesale business, which we used to make all the profits. It was very profitable. We put a lot of expenses from it through one business, and we used those profits to pay off all of our suppliers and the inland revenue and the VAT. And we just had a creditor's agreement with them all. I was pretty bloody fair. There was one supplier I owed 90,000 quid to, and I could have just said, look, sorry, I'm bust. And he came up to me about five years later and said, you know, you're the only person ever stuck
1: to a creditor's agreement and paid us back and we're so grateful so
0: we paid everyone back
1: and so was that in terms of growing up as well the partnership with you and paul and how did that evolve and how did you think about the management of the business at that stage i
0: think that whole period was a big big grow up pill in lots and lots of areas i went from being a kid into you know being an adult and uh, it put lots of pressure on the relationship between paul and i i think we realized that we couldn't work together um We'd set up a wholesale business at the time, wholesaling organic fruit and veg. So he was running that and I was running the home delivery business. I said, you can do that, which is making a profit. And this is just starting to make a profit.
1: And off you go. So that's how we sort of parted company. By that stage, you're in the sole charge, no longer a partnership. You're getting control of your finances. It's nice working capital. If you're growing, you're starting to automate it a bit. How did you win customers and was it all just word of mouth and sort of shoe leather?
0: There were two things that came about really quite uh, fortuitously because we've been going about 12 years. So I think people listening to this need to get the perspective of what it is like to really properly build up an organic business organically. And bear in mind my favourite stat and the thing I'm most proud of, which I very rarely mention, Guy, is that that business had £2,000 worth of capital put into it. And at the point that you assisted in the sale of it, you know how much for, i would made 16,000 times the original capital input. And I think that's better than Facebook. <laughs> Probably is. But, but anyway, two things happened. We got Access version one, which for people that don't know, is part of the Microsoft Office suite. It's a database. So we could bung all of our customers into a database. And we discovered that if we drop leaflets through people's doors that said, you know, truly fresh organic produce straight from the grower to your table. For every 1,000 leaflets, we would get three customers. Wow. 1,000 to 3. 1,000 to 3. So it would cost us basically £30 to get a customer. And that customer would pay us on week one and week two and week three and week four. Obviously, not all of them did, but mostly. And so we had strong retention. We didn't need to pay for the printing or the post office to deliver the leaflets for two months. And that's the equivalent of finding a fruit machine that you don't have to put money in. You just keep pulling the lever. Yeah. And once we discovered that and we had really good accounting to make sure it was all profitable and we were getting, we were getting a return on investment in six weeks. Wow. And we could only manage that with the database. And that's when our sales started going exponential. They went one, three, six, 13, 20, 28,
1: 33. Yeah, as long as you're growing. Yeah. And so when I first met you, was it Ella? That you'd... Uh, yeah. So what? when did you recognise, I don't know, your strengths and weaknesses and elements effects with your sort of wing woman? So after Paul left,
0: one of the last bits of advice my father-in-law gave me, I found him incredibly helpful. He was a great guy. And he effectively was my mentor. The problem was that he worked for Mobile Oil and he was living in Colombia, so... It was quite difficult for him to, you know, and he said, you just need a mentor. So I put a note out in my delivery boxes saying, I'd really like someone who's a dab hand at business to give me a hand. I'd really recommend anyone starting a business to do that because it's really fun for them. I enjoy doing it myself now. And so I got a response from a couple of people who mentored me and helped me make big strategic decisions and helped me think strategically. And one of them had a daughter who was just graduating from Oxford with a fantastic degree in PPE, bright as a button very enthusiastic, very keen on the organic world. And she came to join me in 2003. And we very, very, very quickly realised that we had different skill sets, shall we say, Guy, politely. (laughs) So basically, she became managing director about a year later. And uh, I just carried
1: on being the clown in the background. Yeah, but the clown in the background that was responsible for the top of the funnel. I
0: I think I was responsible for the ambition. I was responsible for problem solving for helping with the business culture and building a team and we were incredibly fortunate you know businesses like this don't grow without a fantastic team behind them and we were lucky to employ some great
1: people who worked incredibly hard. And then um, about that time you started to think about an exit and that's kind of when I first met you when you were looking at potentially selling to PE so I can't remember if it was selling period or selling just to private equity but do you remember when you first started to think about it and what the drivers were why you wanted to sell part de-risk or whatever
0: I remember meeting your boss Neil and him pitching it and Ella saying that wasn't a very good pitch and me ringing him up and going Neil that really wasn't a very good pitch and him pitching again the next day I met Neil in a pub in uh, Abbots Ann in Hampshire and he got a beer mat out which I rather wish i kept and wrote down my options on it which were Sell to trade, sell to majority to PE, get some debt or sell minority to PE. And he did the usual consultant advisor thing of, you know, all your eggs in one basket. And wouldn't it be nice to diversify? And I have worked pretty hard for 20 years and not seen much of my family. And I thought it would be crazy not to take the opportunity if it came. And I think we realised quite quickly that I probably wouldn't work that well with a PE house. So it was decided to bring in a management team so that Ella could retire from the business and I could which is what we did.
1: It was like a sticking plaster, wasn't it?
0: Well, I mean, you know, I still work with Ted and he was absolutely brilliant. I think perhaps, you know, what the team taking it over didn't realise was that he was more than capable of being the CEO. Yeah. It's sort of like, you know, they don't have to be Freddie Mercury to lead the business. And, uh, you know, he led that business very successfully later on and leads the current business we're involved in very successfully. You know, mistakes were made. Do I regret selling it? On the one hand, I think that it was not the best move financially. You know, I think it had a lot of legs in it and we could have grown it an awful lot more as we proved later on we could. On the other hand, it's really nice to have had a change. I'm not sure I'd like to have done the same business from the age of, I mean, I'm 57 now and I started that business when I was 23. (laughs) I'm cauliflowered out.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So do you remember choosing your PE partner? Do you remember, was that purely about the best economic deal or did you consider other things but such a dominant driver?
0: Well, I think, you know, it was a very funny time. If you remember, we were really getting ready in the process and moving it along in the autumn of 2007. And I remember being taken out to Cow's Week, going sailing on a boat. And one of them was Simon Henderson. You remember, Simon? Yeah. And he got his BlackBerry out and he went, oh my God, basically the world was falling out you know, the beginnings of the great financial crisis were happening, yeah. which I have to say, I didn't understand at all what the implications were. But I think we were probably sort of rushing to the finishing line to try and get the deal away before, you know, the doodah hit the fan. So I think whereas now, I would really strongly advise anyone looking at the sale of their business to always have an alternative. And that alternative ultimately needs to be, I don't want to do this deal. Yeah, And I'd urge them to really really figure out whether there's chemistry and agreed understanding with your private equity partner whether they're either going to help you or leave you alone whichever you need yeah it's such an important thing if you're going to go into an ongoing relationship and you've got to get along and you've got to have a shared
1: vision so as you said the proverbial hit the fan i remember talking to you starts getting not just organic veg but i think there was Organic t shirts and organic wine at some stage. There's a whole cacophony of stuff happening at the same time, along with a global financial crash, which I guess people at that stage think, do you know what? I don't need organic veg. Because I know, obviously, it had a very difficult trading period.
0: I think, in hindsight, if the truth be known, because we saw it go through a very difficult trading phase and we saw the recovery from that, I think that mistakes were made in reaction to the difficult climate, which were traditional business tools of, let's improve the margin, let's squeeze the suppliers, let's lift the margin to get our way out of this. And unfortunately, in a really small market like the organic fruit and veg market, you just can't do that. And I think we had agreements with suppliers which were broken, it gave us a very bad reputation. And suppliers just thought, I don't like how they've let me down. You know what, I'll just give it to Sainsbury's. You know, they're gonna pay me on time. So the quality of our produce went down. The customers perceived it in the boxes that they weren't as good as they were. Retention dropped and sales started to really struggle in a business that had taken on an enormous amount of debt. You're very quickly
1: breaching your covenants. You went back in, I remember talking to you at the time, and it was not an easy decision for you. You were very sort of hesitant about doing so but ultimately had the courage i suppose to take that jump how did you approach it differently this sort of second time round?
0: you know when i first sold the business i didn't own a house i didn't have a pension i didn't even own my own car talk about all your eggs in one basket it was so terrifying if anything's going slightly wrong with the business the second time round, i'd bought a house i had some money in the bank i was a little bit more relaxed and things really weren't going that well And I just thought, you know what, if it all goes pear-shaped, I don't really care. They can blame it on me if they want to. But, you know, let's give it a go. And I was incredibly blessed with having Ted Bell, who's an incredibly sensible, steady pair of hands. And we just went right back to basics. And I have to say, in terms of fun and excitement and satisfaction, that 18 months was undisputably the best 18 months I've ever had in business. I mean, we went back in in October 2009 to basically a bankrupt business. Eighteen months later, we'd taken sales from twenty seven million to forty five million, and we'd taken profits from basically nothing to four and a half million. And that was with no additional cash input. And Bats Basics was simply now
1: getting the higher quality veg back in the box.
0: It was Ted and I going to every single week sitting down with the buyers and saying what's going in these boxes and making sure that every single one looked perfect every single day going to the production line and working with the quality people and getting it so that they were absolutely the best organic veg boxes that had ever gone out. And they really were. And the strap line we came up with at that period, which was in the autumn, was Abel and Cole have turned over a new leaf. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) And you immediately saw it. You know, new customers started staying with us. Existing customers started saying, gosh, they're so much better. We just rejigged everything about those boxes and made them fantastic. The recipes got made better. We got rid of the entire marketing team, completely where there were 13 people working in marketing when we went there 2 weeks after we got back there were no one in the marketing department because no point in having a marketing department if sales are going backwards yeah it's not working so we printed 6 million leaflets very carefully done we put our prices up by 2 quid and we distributed these leaflets and we literally just crossed our fingers and prayed that there'd be a response and there wasn't <laughs> and Ted and I went well that's it then you know we're bust and the leaflets were going out on the Monday. And on Tuesday, we hadn't had a single new customer. And I worked so hard on these leaflets. And that was it. That was the last throw of the dice. And it was sort of like, you know, how are we going to wind it down? And how are we going to let everyone know? And we should have enough cash to be able to pay most suppliers. And then on Wednesday, the website went absolutely mad. And it turned out that the Royal Mail had failed to deliver these leaflets on Monday or Tuesday. And they finally got around to doing it
1: on Wednesday. So that was it. It was very simple. Oh, wow. Wow. I remember, didn't you start employing out-of-work actors? Was that around that time? So we went right back
0: to basics. We'd started by knocking on people's doors and we employed a certain Freddie Garland and put him in charge of getting his mates in to knock on doors. The criteria I've always said is that you had to have gone to a second-rate public school a non-Russell group university, and got a third, like <laughs> myself. So we ended up with this, you know, fantastic bunch of people that were going around the streets of Brighton and Oxford and, you know, areas where we knew we could do better, but we didn't have the marketing budget. This is before social media. Yeah. And Freddie built up that team to 60, 70 people. Wow. And did a brilliant job, carried on working
1: there after we'd sold it. And so, yes, yeah, so for the second sale, not to open a wound, but I remember there was that call with Amazon. Yeah. That's the near miss, isn't it? How can I put it?
0: They, uh, the bank, bundled us up, you know, a very profitable, fast growing business with a bunch of loss making businesses, put them in a package to sell them to a private equity fund and sold the business from underneath us, resulting in us making nothing out of it. You know, what was one of the great turnarounds of the year. And at that point, we'd had to turn away
1: Amazon. And they were thinking of getting into home delivery of, yeah, organic food. Yeah. Yeah. I think they ended up buying one of our slightly larger competitors. So you ended up selling out to Jackson's.
0: We ended up with a very happy sale to William Jackson Food Group, who are a great family run business. It's
1: in very safe hands. Happy days for everyone concerned. As so you took some time out then, I think a spiritual couple of years. Yeah, yep. Basically you've worked out Ted makes you, you know, the two plus two equals five. Yep. And you and Ted were looking at some really interesting branded paint businesses and all sorts of. Uh,
0: we looked at a shoe business. We looked at a children's shoe business. And the one we got very close to was Denby China. But thank goodness we didn't. It's not R forty. You were sort of interested in repositioning a branded consumer business. That was kind of what happened. Yeah, you... and I think, you know, we'd just done a big turnaround in one business and we thought we were, you know, Alchemist. king of the castle and we could do it to another business. Yeah, you know, yeah. But it didn't work out like that. No. So you
1: caught up with Freddie again. What...
0: Freddie rang me up in uh, September 2014, In his usual charming way, he said, oh, Keith, um, I don't know if you know, but my mum and dad were florists and I've got this idea. What do you think if we put some flowers in a box and did what you did with fruit and veg boxes? And I said, that is genius. (laughs) So he said, well, how do I start? And I said, well, I tell you what, I'll lend you some money and you give it a go and just mark down every door you knock on, what people say, how many of them buy from you and keep a record of it all. So uh, I went to the lawyers and I said, Could you draft this agreement for me to lend Freddie fifteen thousand pounds? I thought, well, maybe it was ten. No, it was ten. Uh, and they came back with a fee quote of eleven. <laughs> so, so I said to Freddie, can you send me an email saying, Dear Keith, thanks for the ten grand, I'll try and pay you back. Yeah, yeah, perfect. Which is how we started it. So dear old Freddie, he went to the market just like I'd done 20 years before uh, with his mum, and he bought a selection of flowers. And he got some cardboard boxes and he put a tent up in his mum and dad's back garden in Wandsworth, which was his warehouse. And he bought a milk float to deliver them on, which went six miles an hour. And he knocked on doors and it took him six weeks to get 100 customers. And over that six weeks, Ted and I went around there, got up early in the morning a couple of times, went and picked up the flowers. We got photographs of us all in the little tent together making them. And as we'd asked, he kept a record of absolutely every bit of data, just on scraps of paper. Yeah. And Ted and I crunched it all into models. And we went and delivered ourselves, you know, when you're delivering it. How you find the flowers. Oh, they're just fantastic. Freddie okay oh, he's a delight. Have you ever seen anything like this before? Nah, it's just fantastic. I'm telling all my friends about it. And we just realized that we were really onto something. And so we built up a model that sort of had an investment case attached to it. And We agreed that I would put the money in and Ted would put the time in. And we reached an agreement with Freddie and we started that in uh, April 2015. When do you go, this is as good as Able and Cole, if not better? What was the sort of... If you look at our original three-year plan, which I could dig out, we weren't far off it in those first three years. I don't think we thought in any way that it could do as well as it has done. You'd be mad to think that. But I think we thought we could easily comfortably build up a sort of 20, 25 million pound business. And that would be a really nice thing to do, give us a great return on investment and, you know, hold it as a bit of a lifestyle business. Little did we know. You were basically going, I could do Oxford, Brighton, London. Well, we were thinking basically we could do Wandsworth, Chelsea, Kensington, you know, Notting Hill. I mean, the first year we didn't have a website, Guy. How retro is that? Yeah. We only had this team of Freddie's friends and their friends of friends just bashing on doors and standing next to bicycles on the street and turning up at the Chelsea Flower Show and just getting out anywhere where they could get face-to-face time because just like organic veg back in the day, the idea of self-gifting yourself regular flowers and arranging it yourself is quite a complicated sell. And we were the first people doing it. We were opening a
1: new market up. So face-to-face worked very well. And the big differences are your customers churn slower or it's much slower churn, isn't it, than Avon Cole? It is,
0: yeah. They churn slower, they order less frequently they're cheaper to acquire, and the margin slightly better but I'd say more importantly it's a much more stable product flowers, and so the quality consistency is much better. The customer experience is just fab and it's just fun it's just a really nice thing
1: to do, and it 's a price point where it's a nice treat, but it's not too expensive and it's cheaper than sky yeah. Yeah. You know, if you get it every week. Yeah. And what we've been really
0: delighted by is that actually it's really not about Wandsworth, Notting Hill and Chelsea. It's gone all the way around the demographic and you meet a lot of people, teachers, nurses, hardworking, ordinary folk that we want to delight. And they get it, you know, once a month and it's their little treat to themselves once a month. And the flowers they look after and they last three weeks and then they've got a week without any flowers waiting for the next lot.
1: And you made some different strategic decisions because initially you outsourced the logistics, whereas Abel and Cole, you had a fleet of vans that were always needing repairing. Yep. Abel and Cole, you could pick and choose and Freddy's flowers, you got what you're given. You've kept it super, super simple. We have.
0: And I think that's the right thing. You know, if we can come up with a really fabulous arrangement each week, I think if we were coming up with three or four, it would just complicate things. So we start with one. We do have exclusions for lilies because there's a, population of people who are concerned about the welfare of their cats i'm not sure the efficacy of that but we don't want to scare people and there's some rumors that pollen off lilies can harm cats so we do a cat box otherwise there are no amendments allowed at all we did outsource logistics we've now bought about half of it in-house on our electrical bicycle fleet we did outsource our production but that didn't work so we bought that in-house you know otherwise it's been
1: pretty similar and as a marketing guru You're now a social media influencer. So you've stopped leaflets or maybe you still do. But the big thing is the social media.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, before lockdown, we were probably half and half social media and face to face. And sadly, the lockdown ended face to face. And we decided to double down and all the budget that we had for these 75 salesmen we threw into social media at a time when essentially Facebook, Instagram advertising was quite cheap. So our CPAs came plummeting down our cost of customers. And I think what we've learned is that you need to get to a certain volume of spend with the big tech companies before their algorithms really kick in. And so in other words, it's sort of like the more you spend, the better the results are. It's been our experience. Last week we had our record ever week for new customer acquisitions. What does that look like? That was approximately 12,500 customers in the
1: UK and 2,500 in Germany. Wow. And how long do you know till that customer with you for a long time? What's the fall off rate? So
0: we know that the payback's around about four months at the moment, four to six months.
1: Right. Yeah. And once you've got them for that
0: long, they're with you for a much longer period of time. It's a standard sort of retention curve of a subscription business where you've got a steep drop at the start, often you know, people who just in for the special offer. But if you can get them to three months, then it's a very stable
1: reliable customer base and so covid's been i guess there's a bit of consumer behavior compounded with it you sort of throwing everything into social media and that really working there's
0: definitely a change in mentality a lot of people are working at home i think that's going to go on i think the new normal is that you know people will probably go to the office two or three days a week and work at home two or three days a week and the money they were spending on prep they're spending on making their house a bit nicer and we see hundreds of people with their flowers in their home office when they're posting their photographs so
1: We've definitely benefited from that. And you've kept the business private, but you did bond offering earlier in the year. Yeah, we
0: did. We did. It was a really nice way of getting customers to join in with the success. And we're very confident about the stability of the business because it's spread across over 130,000 customers now. And it's very carefully managed and cash is very carefully looked after. And we realized that if we wanted to expand into Europe, we'd need some additional funding and we didn't really want to go out To look for funding at that time, because we knew the first question people would say is, well, how do you know it's going to work in Europe? Now, we knew it was going to, so we thought, well, why don't we prove it works in Europe with a small raise, and then we'll be in a position to do a bigger raise if necessary. So we asked our customers, we put together a document, we said this is what we're doing. We'll either pay you 7.5% interest if you get flowers for your bond, or 5% if it's cash. And it was very popular, I think we raised nearly 4.5 million. And we did that inside of two and a half months. And I think for businesses out there with large customer bases, it's a great way to get cash, engage the customers. They're happy. They feel that they've got a good return on their money. I emphasize that you must make sure you've got a safe, stable business to do this. But we did. And that was Germany. So we launched in Germany at the end of November. Logistically, that's not straightforward. So what did you have you? Uh, that's been very straightforward. We, uh, I mean, I say that we have a, a Dutch supplier who packs the boxes for us yeah so we trained up his team and they pack the boxes for us so we get great quality control and we distribute through a courier in Germany overnight we've had a couple of glitches with tech issues where we had to take three weeks off marketing but where are we now we're middle of January and I'd say you could say we started towards the end of November really and we are bigger in Germany than we were after four years trading in the UK.
1: So Freddie Flowers in five years time. What's the medium term vision for the I business? I really need
0: to get my white cat out and start
1: stroking it. <laughs> You'll take over the world. We're
0: very ambitious. So this summer, we're hoping to start rolling out across 11 further countries in Northern Europe. Wow. And we've got the tech to do that. And we were going to start in California last April, but lockdown happened. So we're all set up to do that. The company's set up. I'd like to see our first boxes going out on a very small trial in June or July with a plan to roll it out from September onwards. And the plan there is to do West Coast, then East
1: Coast. On to some of your learnings over the last 34 years. I mean, I think you've learned a lot about people and, you know, we have got Ella and Ted and Paul and yeah, what do you look for in a business partner? And in- Well, I think, you know, I'm a great
0: fan of, you know, Myers,
1: Briggs and Belbin, of
0: making sure that if you're a prop forward, you don't employ lots of other prop forwards. You need to get people who can run with the ball. So I think complementary teams working together is absolutely imperative. So we've just done our great places to work survey and, you know, we've done pretty well, but it gives you great feedback on what we can do better. Ted and I are kind of a bit long in the tooth and we actually are not these sort of psychotically greedy Wolves of Wall Street. And ultimately, we want the people who work in our organisation to go home at night feeling, you know, safe and secure, fairly paid and happy to be a part of it. And we put a lot of effort into that and always have done.
1: Looking back, it's 34 years of sustained growth. It's quite a
0: flog. I mean, the first few years of Freddie's, let's be clear, you know, we used to joke that Freddie was like someone walking through a minefield, jumping from one mine to the next. Anything that could go wrong went wrong. Because when it's small, it's small. It's difficult. You know, you saw an office we worked in with 45 people in it that was designed for 15, but we couldn't afford to move anywhere else. Yeah. It was chaos. But uh, I think it's realising that it's always going to get slightly better as long as it's slowly improving. Yeah. I'm blessed with one of the great qualities of entrepreneurship, which is that I'm a lazy bastard. (laughs) So I've always been very, very clear that you don't count my holidays and... I don't expect to have a meeting in my diary before 10 o'clock. And I delegate, and I make sure I've got good people around me. And so, you know, the old adage is it's kind of become sustainable. I don't find it exhausting. I genuinely find it quite exciting. And, you know, that number with Freddy's, for every pound we've put into it, with our current value, it's increased it by 100 times in five years. You know, you'd be pleased with that with Tenzing, wouldn't you?
1: Yeah, I'd be happy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Done. yeah. thank you. Yeah, so exactly. after a while, it's not quite so stressful. It's super exciting. So, I was going to ask you a few quick, far questions, if that's all right, just to wrap up. Your favourite book that you sort of turn to or that you've enjoyed or lean on?
0: Well, I mean, whenever anyone joins me, I'm afraid I'm a right old bore and I give them Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. You know, anyone running a business that doesn't teach that to their managers, I think, missing a trick. So there's that, and there's a great book about a messiah who doesn't want to be a messiah, written by a chap called Richard Bach, who wrote Jonathan Livingston Seagull that I love, and it's called Illusions, The Adventures of a Reluctant Messiah. And the key behind it is it's a guy who can walk across water and swim in the land, but he really doesn't want to do it. And everyone's saying, oh, you're the messiah, you're the messiah. And he goes, oh, for God's sake, if you guys had just relaxed, you could all be the messiah. So
1: I rather enjoy that book. That's brilliant. And then who's the most inspiring or influential person to you, do you think, throughout your career?
0: I think I was enormously inspired by my father-in-law. Without him, I wouldn't be where I am. Very humble guy, very hardworking, very methodical, totally understood strategy, just a great guy. Right man, right time as well
1: for you. Yeah. And the most important qualities for a founder, entrepreneur?
0: I think that everyone's pretty much in agreement that the one thing that's absolutely imperative above everything is tenacity. If you've got a wall in front of you, can you get over it? Can you get around it? Can you get underneath it? And if the answer to all of that's no, a lot of people will go, well, I can't get through that wall. But the entrepreneur will say, sir, I'm going to blow it up.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'll find a way. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, that's absolutely
1: yeah. imperative. Never give up. Well, brilliant. Keith, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. I've been wanting to this for a long, long time and you've not failed to uh, amuse me, as ever. A big thank you. You've always been a huge inspiration to me, so I really appreciate you spending the time. Pleasure, Guy. I'm sure you can see why Keith has been such a great personal inspiration to me. His enthusiasm, energy and can-do attitude are infectious and encourage you to believe in yourself. Despite his sarcasm, he is an amazing and innovative marketeer, inspiring the audiences emotionally, but above all, he is super tenacious. He went to some very dark places with Abraham Cole and he has distilled that learning with the help of Ted and Freddie to supercharge Freddie's flowers towards world domination. And I can't wait to see him succeed. If you enjoyed listening to my conversation with Keith and want to hear more inspiring stories, you can search Tenzing or The Ascent on any of your usual podcast platforms. We'd also love for you to rate and review this episode and please don't forget to subscribe so you'll be the first with access to future ones. You can find out more on tenzing.pe, on Twitter, LinkedIn or on Instagram. I'd love talking to you. Bye for now.